Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John that unpacks 15 Greek words in Scripture that explain a stunning paradox, how a God of perfect justice can show mercy to sinners who deserve only punishment. Request your free booklet titled 15 Words of Hope, 
by writing to hope at gty.org. That's hope at gty.org. This offer is good in North America and Europe through June 2023. And now, unleashing God's truth one verse at a time, here's grace to you, Bible teacher John MacArthur. As we continue in our series, and I don't know how long this will go, we'll have to see. Um, I told you a few weeks ago that I wanted to just go through the four Gospels in uh, somewhat... um, random fashion, selecting very important words and conversations from the lips of Jesus. And that's what we're doing. The very words that he said and how critical and significant they are. And we come to a third one of those this morning And uh, it's a rather extended passage, but turn in your Bible to Matthew 7. Matthew 7. It's a very familiar passage. And I want to read verses 13 through 27. Matthew 7, 13 through 27. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. 
you have here a very definitive section of instruction from our Lord. It simplifies the complexity of religion. And religion on its surface can be very complicated. And the number of religions and the nuances of religions and the forms and iterations of religion are confusing, to put it mildly. But what you have here is a very simple revelation that there are only two religions. There is one connected to the narrow gate and one to the wide gate, one connected to the way which is broad and the other connected to the way which is narrow. One leads to destruction, the other leads to life. One has many people on it and the other has few. And when you move down sort of to the end of the line on those roads, you meet some people who came on the broad road in verse 21, and they lay claim to knowing the Lord, doing things in His name. But definitively, He says in verse 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Then in verses 24 to 27, you have depicted a final judgment in which the religious people are divided between those who built on a rock and those who built on sand and those who built on the rock fall under judgment. But that judgment doesn't touch them. Their house survives. Those who build on the sand fall under judgment and destruction is the result. This is a very, very important portion of Scripture. There are a lot of familiar statements in here that you've heard in the past, but it's the definitive nature of this passage that is so helpful. There are only two religions. There are only two possibilities. To, to put it simply, there is the true religion and all the rest is false. All the rest may come under endless labels, but in the end it's false. It's basically a product of the false teachers mentioned in verses 15 to 20, and its fruit like theirs is all bad. So whatever the name of a false religion is, it's, it's just a name because there's only two possible religions, the true and the false. There are endless iterations of the false, but only one that is true. 
from what we read here, there is the religion that's related to the works that people do, done by the flesh, producing a kind of self-righteousness. I like to call it the religion of self-achievement. But on the other hand, there is the true religion, which is by faith, in the power of the Spirit, that brings heavenly righteousness. That's the religion of divine accomplishment. Just those two. And they don't mix. If you go over to the ninth chapter of Matthew and drop down to verse 16, our Lord gives a couple of illustrations of how they are incompatible. No one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine in old wineskins, otherwise the wineskins burst and the wine pours out and the wineskins are ruined. They put new wine into fresh wineskins and both are preserved. What, what is that about? What our Lord is saying there is you can't match these two religions. You can't sew them together. You can't place one within the container, as it were, of another. It doesn't work. They don't mix. Again, there is the religion of human achievement, which is based on works done in the flesh, producing a kind of self-righteousness. The other is faith, operating in the Spirit and bringing heavenly righteousness. And the world is locked in a struggle between these two religions. The true one is under the power of God. The other one is under the power of Satan. Now, the first contrast that we see with these two is in verses 13 and 14. So let me draw your attention to this. In these two verses, and they're very brief, there's a density, however, of reality. There are four contrasts here, verses 13 and 14. Two gates, two ways, two destinations, and two crowds. Two gates, two ways, two destinations, and two crowds. That's all. All religion fits into these two. Two gates. Let's start there. The narrow gate, verse 13, and the wide gate. Now, the, the idea here is that these are gates that are marked heaven. They're marked heaven. Because down in verse 21, it's obvious he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. And the ultimate end of life, which is 
either destruction or life, life eternal, as is referenced in verse 14. So these are two gates, you could say, to heaven, gates of salvation. And by the way, neither of them says hell. Nobody's selling hell. Nobody is propagating a religion that sends you to hell. They're promising you heaven. But unless it's the true religion, it's a damning lie. So let's start with the gates and understand what our Lord is saying. Let me break it down simply. It's a command in verse 13, enter, enter. You must enter. This is an absolute command. Not enough to stand and admire Jesus or admire His ethics or even the ethics of the Sermon on the Mount in which this is placed. This is a gate. And its purpose is to let in and shut out. Like Matthew 25, you remember when the ten virgins were getting ready for the bridegroom to come at the wedding feast and five of them wandered off and while they were gone the bridegroom came and the virgins that were there entered in and the door was shut. A door is designed to let in and let out. So it's not enough to stand and admire Christ, admire Christianity. You must enter. And you are going to be essentially a part of one of these two religions. If you don't enter the narrow gate by default, you're going to find yourself on the broad road through the broad gate. So let's just start with that. You must enter. And if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must enter the narrow gate. The narrow gate. What do you mean by the narrow gate? It's as narrow as the gospel. And the gospel is very narrow. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's narrow. Jesus said, I am the light. I am the bread. I am the living water. And those were all singular claims. Acts 4.12 says there's no salvation in any other name than the name of Jesus. Romans 10.17 says faith comes by hearing the message concerning Jesus. 1 Corinthians 16.22 says if you love not the Lord Jesus Christ, you're damned. And 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only 
gate. You must enter. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, you, you must enter and you must enter this gate. A third thing to think about is you must enter this gate alone. Alone. You leave the world behind. You, you leave family and friends behind. If you go a few chapters over to chapter 10 of Matthew, In verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. This is not a group exercise. Not a matter of race, not a matter of circumcision, not a matter of family, not a matter of community. You must enter alone. The kingdom grows one soul at a time. You have to break away from the crowd and even the most intimate people in your life who are very frequently going to be your enemies. There's more. You must enter this narrow gate. You must enter alone. And you must enter with a certain measure of force. That may sound strange. You might think, well, I thought it was easy. Don't you just pray this prayer? You see the TV evangelist say, repeat after me and you're in. This doesn't seem too difficult. In fact, it seems ridiculously easy. Just parrot this prayer. But this is not easy. And we know that because at the end of verse 14, it says there are few who find it. It's hard to even find it, let alone enter it. Why is it hard to find it? Because you're darkened by sin? Because you're doubly darkened by Satan? The God of this world has blinded your eyes. And because of all the false teachers, verses 15 to 20. Spreading lies to deceive. Few there be that find it. And for those who find it, it's very difficult to enter. You have to count the cost. This is clearly indicated by our Lord, you have to count the cost. You have to be willing to step away from the people that you love the most. In John 12, it says, you have to hate your own life. 
In Luke 9, 23, it says, if you want to come after me, you want to follow me, then deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. This is why it's difficult. Because it's a complete surrender. In fact, in Matthew 11, verse 12, there's a most interesting statement. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. It's not so easy. It's not so easy. In Luke chapter 13, listen to verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. It's with great difficulty that you enter. There's a certain violence to it as you have to be separated from everything that was important to you. Listen to Luke 16, 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. The people who come into the kingdom come because they are desperate. So desperate they are willing to abandon themselves. They are willing to confess Jesus as Lord and themselves as His slaves. According to Luke 14, they're willing to count the cost. According to the parables of Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, they're willing to sell everything to buy the pearl of great price, sell everything to buy the treasure in the field. It's selling everything. Self-denial, take up your cross, which means may cost you your life, and follow Him. So you must enter, you must enter this gate, you must enter alone, you must enter with a certain amount of violence, difficulty, and you must enter naked in a sense, with nothing in your hands. You can't, you can't go through the narrow gate with your baggage. It's a turnstile. It's the gate of self-denial. You can't bring everything with you. That's what our Lord said to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. He wanted to hold on to everything that he possessed. And the Lord said, unless you're willing to give up everything you possess... Even your money. You, you can't be in the kingdom. 
He wasn't about to do that because he was very rich and turned his back. In other words, when you come on through the gate, you hold on to nothing. And you're basically saying, Lord, take whatever you want, take whatever you will. I want you, and I want your blessing and your reward far more than I want anything that belongs to this passing world. And there's basically a kind of summation in all of that of what repentance means. You're turning your back on everything. So, entering the narrow gate, Jesus is demanding essentially what he demanded in Luke 9.23. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. That's the only thing you bring with you is an instrument to be crucified on and obey him. On the other hand, you could choose the wide gate, easily found, easily marked, with all kinds of false teachers pointing you in that direction, lots of crowds, no difficulty, no self-denial. Bring your baggage, bring your sin, bring your self-will. No repentance, no surrender, no submission to Christ. It's the gate of self-indulgence. It's for those who want a little religion, but religion that doesn't ask them to give up everything. Two gates lead to two ways. There is the wide way, or the broad way, in verse 13, and there is the narrow way in verse 14. Again, the same contrast. The broad way, you come through the wide gate, you bring everything with you, all your sins, all your tolerances. There are no curbs, there are no demands, there are nothing, nothing is forbidden. You can satisfy your self-gratification, your personal will. This, you could say, is what Psalm 1-6 calls the way of the ungodly. But on the other hand, the way behind the narrow gate is a narrow way. Narrow in the sense that it's constricted. It's pressed together. It's demanding. It calls for separation. It calls for obedience. It calls for sanctification. It promises persecution. You come on that way, and you essentially will battle all the way to glory. And there are two destinations. The Broadway in verse 13 leads to destruction, which is hell. The narrow way leads to life, which is 
heaven. And there are only those two ways. And there are two crowds. There are many, many on the broad road and few on the narrow. Few. It isn't long in this passage. In fact, it's verse 21. That we meet the many at the end of the broad way. Let's go down to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many, oh, there they are. There are the many. And they will say on that day, what's that day? That's the day they face God, face the Lord. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord, we, we did do your will. We prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Apart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That, that's the, that's the, the end of the broad way. You get rejected. And you get rejected by the judge. And even though you lay claim to serving him, you say, Lord, Lord. The repetition of that is, is fraught with a certain kind of passion. To say, Lord, Lord, is both polite and respectful and you could say orthodox and fundamental and full of passion and zeal and fervor. And we, we, did we not prophesy in your name? We were, we were associated with you. And didn't we cast out demons in your name and in your name perform many miracles? Of course, these are false claims. We, we were doing it all for you. This is the ultimate deception of false religion. You actually preach, assault the kingdom of darkness, and perform miracles in the name of the Lord. And He doesn't know you. Why? Because those are not the marks of true faith. Marks of true faith our obedience and righteousness. And he makes that clear in verse 23. You practice lawlessness, depart from me. There has to be in, in this group the most disappointed people in all of human history. These are not atheists. These are not agnostics. These are not Muslims and Buddhists and whatever. 
These are people who outwardly identified with Christ, but their lives were not marked by righteousness. Righteousness. In fact, the form of our Lord's comment, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, is actually you who do always work lawlessness. Your profession is valueless. This is the blasphemy of the sanctuary, which is worse than the blasphemy of the street. So many people are in false religion and false forms of Christianity. Millions of them professing to know Christ, and it's just empty words. They may call Jesus Lord, Lord, but never submit to Him. They're not marked by righteousness. Jeff O'Hara wrote, Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say? You call me the way and walk me not. You call me the life and live me not. You call me master and obey me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. You call me bread and eat me not. You call me truth and believe me not. You call me Lord and serve me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. James 1.22 says, Don't be just a hearer of the Word, deceiving your own selves, but be a doer. It's, it's not the profession. It's the reality that matters. And we come then to verses 24 to 27, and we see the end of both roads, both groups. In a picture of judgment, judgment is depicted as a storm and the individuals who are caught in the storm are depicted as houses. Verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, that's what righteousness is like. You hear, you believe, you obey. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. These are houses that are indistinguishable. The assumption here is they... They built these houses in the same location because the same storm hit them. They, they built a house, so this is common religious enterprise, a life of 
religious activity. They apparently built from similar materials because it was not obvious before the judgment who would survive and who would not. And our Lord pointed that out, didn't he, in the wheat and tares. We don't know who the wheat are and who the tares are until the judgment. One built a religious house on Petra, rock bed, and that would be Christ and obedience to his word. The other built on sand, and that would be any other ideology propagated by the false teachers. And when the judgment comes, the house on the rock stands, and the house on the sand collapses. And again, just to make the obvious clear, the final story will not be known until the final judgment. It it won't become manifest. And again, that's why our Lord says, let the wheat and tares grow together. Because you can't sort them out. I mean, really, if you have people saying, Lord, Lord, and proclaiming His name and going against the kingdom of darkness in His name and endeavoring to perform miracles in His name, pretty hard to tell whether they're false. Now, if you look at the life and you see lawlessness and unrighteousness, it's obvious, but hypocrites are hypocrites because they're pretty good at covering that up. And I think there are people who are deceived about their own hypocrisy. Everything comes down to this. What do you do with the word of the Lord? These words of mine, verse 24. These words of mine, verse 26. Those who are truly saved live by the word of God. Love the Word of God. Desire to obey the Word of God. They have a commitment to obedience, to righteousness, to sanctification as a dominating commitment in their life. doesn't mean you're perfect. Far from it. But, But this is what matters to them. The people who build on sand are the people who don't particularly care about obedience. And their house will be destroyed. Luke 6, 47 and 48 makes a distinction I think is interesting. In its parallel passage on this, it says the people on the rock dug deep. This man 
dug deep. Meaning, counting the cost, submitting will and way and life and possessions and relationships to Christ. It's just a question of how deep you dig. And again, it's not just as simple as parroting a prayer. If your house is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, you have had you you have had a deep dive into the kingdom. You you understand what you have abandoned and what you have embraced. How deep does your love for the Lord and your obedience penetrate into your heart and soul and life? That's the question that reveals where you are. Narrow road or broad road? And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Most important thing you can ever know. And the Lord will reveal it to you. You may be involved in the church, in a class, a Bible study, a group. You, you, you may be involved in the discussions of Scripture and theology as a curiosity or an academic pursuit. But if your house is built on the sand, there's a great way to know that. And it is usually that you know you are overindulgent in sin. You lack penitence. You have no hunger for holiness. You abuse grace. You have a secret life of hidden transgression. So I repeat, verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. I hate the fact that it's many, but that's the reality. Let it not include you. Let's bow in prayer. Nothing, of course, in the world is more important than the gospel and the salvation that is made available through the gospel. Lord, speak to anyone who's holding on to anything in this world 
that's keeping them from fully committing to Jesus Christ. Show them the folly of that. Don't let them get away with empty words from empty hearts. Bring the truth to bear and the life both abundant and eternal that is available because you are such a loving and gracious God. Do your work in every heart, we pray, for your glory. Amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with grace to you. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit grace to use website at gty.org. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org, and it includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page as Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O dot C-O-M. Truthbetoldradio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at truthbetoldradioshow at gmail.com. If you like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. That's truthbetoldradio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Is it time to panic? This is Ken Ham, head of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Early last year, the James Webb Space Telescope was launched. Now, as this telescope looks at galaxies far away, evolutionary scientists believe it's peering back in time, close to the Big Bang. But aren't they seeing what they expect? No. The papers published on the collected data highlight scientists' confusion. Why do the galaxies not match what's predicted by the Big Bang model. One paper even had this word in the title, panic. Of course, I'm not panicked. The Big Bang model contradicts the Bible, which says, in the beginning, God created. So we never expected the evidence to confirm the Big Bang. Indeed, the history in God's word 
is true. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under are free for all of 2023. Go to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. A mighty fortress. A mighty fortress. inflation. This is Ken Ham, founder and CEO of the Apologetics Ministry of Answers in Genesis. Now when I ask where's the inflation, I'm not talking about economics. Here's what I mean. Because of certain observations astronomers have made about the universe, those who believe in the Big Bang have what's called the horizon problem. 
Now they've attempted to solve this with cosmic inflation, the idea that immediately after the Big Bang, the universe expanded faster than the speed of light. Now while this solves a horizon problem, it creates a new one for those who believe the Big Bang. Where's the evidence for this inflation? Well, it's nowhere. Zero. And that's not surprising because the Big Bang, well, it never happened. There's so much more to learn when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com and listen to this program again or read a complete transcript when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Yeah. He made us all, yo. Yeah. God made us all, yo. God made me and you. Sing, children. So we He did it to show off his glory and worth In Genesis 1, what we see in each verse Is God made a world that is truly diverse From icebergs to insects, tornadoes to trees From lions to lizards, flamingos to fleas Each in their own way, they God they are praising Their differences cry out, God is amazing But the crown jewel of the work of his hands Are made in his image, both woman and man We're not accidents, we are part of his plan Yup, God made me and you, let's go never the same. Each person is different, unique in their frame. God made them all, each kind and each sport. He made some people tall and some people short. Dark skin, light skin, and all in between. In each color and shade, his beauty is seen. The Lord knows the number of hairs on your head. Whether brown or black, whether blonde, gray or red. What some call ethnicity and others call race. We should celebrate as a gift of God's grace. You're wonderfully made from your feet to your face. Yup, God made me and you. Let's go. And the Lord will be saved in the book of Revelation, chapter number 7. The church from all times is gathered in heaven. Each tribe and people, language and nation, all thanking God for the gift of salvation. Together, forever, with saints of all kinds, through each the glory of the Lord's going to shine. This is exactly what God has designed when God made me and you. Let's go.
Jesus died, rose, and paid the cost. God made me and you. Different colors and different shades, all fearfully and wonderfully made. Through each the glory of God displayed. God made me and you. For all of our you, all are lost. All of great need for the cross. Jesus died, rose, and paid the cross. The Big Bang, it's not good science. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's Word and the Gospel. There are so many problems with the Big Bang model and recent observations aren't helping. Here's just a few problems. The Big Bang should have created magnetic monopoles, but none have been found. The Big Bang should have created equal parts of matter and antimatter, but only very small amounts of antimatter have been found. The Big Bang model predicts stars should have formed made up of only the three lightest elements, and yet none of those stars have been found. To solve these problems, the Big Bang model is continually propped up with hypotheses. But they can't be falsified. It's just not good science. The Big Bang, it's a big bust. Learn more about science, the Bible, creation, evolution, and more at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be equipped with answers from God's Word when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com.
scientific this is ken ham head of the ministry that built a full-size noah's ark near cincinnati over the past few years i've seen many articles pointing to the big problem within modern science it's not always well scientific one problem is fraud scientists publishing papers with made up or misrepresented data then other scientists use that data in their studies and the fraud just spreads according to one recent article this is a massive problem in the sciences it's a reminder to Christians not to get sucked into the science says mentality. Men make mistakes and well, they also lie. But God never makes mistakes. He's never wrong and he never lies. Instead of trusting sinful man, let's trust God's perfect infallible word. Plan your visit to the full-size Noah's Ark at the Ark Encounter when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Kids 10 and under are free for all of 2023. Go to AnswersRadio.com.
I'm from Augusta, Georgia. Sweet. I'm originally from Lebanon. Is that right? One of my dearest friends is from Lebanon. Very sweet people. Yeah. Tell, tell me, Maya, what are you studying here? Sociology and biology. All right. So you're thinking everything I'm saying is pretty nuts, aren't you? I didn't hear all of it, but. Yeah, you do. Well, it's okay. I won't, trust me, I won't be offended. All right, where do you, just a little bit that you heard. Tell me where you disagree. Where do you think I'm wrong? Um, well, I agree that God is just, but I don't believe that God is. I believe that God made us free will. So he's like away from the world. So he doesn't implement his
we're murdering people in our hearts. So I grant you, stabbing somebody in the chest is not the same as calling somebody a jerk when you're driving through Athens. But it's still seen by God, because he is just, as being a sin. So now you brought up the concept of justice. If God is just, wouldn't the opposite be true of what you're saying? That he must punish lawbreakers? Yeah, but the law isn't
stood in old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my Someday for 
What was the reason that God told Abraham to sacrifice his son? What was the point biblically? I do not know the point biblically. All right. If you would grant me the privilege of telling you, it's the study of typology that in the Old Testament there were fuzzy pictures of a greater reality to come. It's called types and shadows. And there are many of them in the Old Testament. And Abraham and Isaac is one of the most beautiful pictures we have. Here's what you've got. A father who loves his only beloved son marches up a mountain, which was Mount Moriah, which is right outside of Jerusalem, which is where most people believe the crucifixion took place. And he was told to sacrifice his son. He's prepared to do so, and God stops him. God stopped a father from killing his only beloved son on Mount Moriah. And then he provided a ram in the thicket for the sacrifice. Because God was going to provide the lamb. Now, fast forward 2,200 years. Jesus Christ died on that mountain when his beloved father killed his only beloved son for your sins. The story of Abraham and Isaac is a picture of the gospel. That's why that story is in the Bible. Who told Abraham to kill Isaac? God. You just don't like that God can do whatever he wants to. No, I find that unjust. Yeah, I, I feel I, that he should stick to the same moral code he gives us. So, Irving, really, at, at some point, either you're right about what justice is or God is. That's sure. all. Sure. Let me share with you the story of the ark. Remember Noah's ark I from do. being Presbyterian? Do you know the reason for that story? Uh, to cleanse the world of wickedness, right? Well, that was a punishment for wickedness. You're correct about that. But God didn't kill everybody. He saved eight people in a boat. The New Testament says, Peter said, That ark is a picture of Jesus, that we were saved from the wrath of God, just like those eight people were saved from God's wrath Mm -hmm. of water. There's one door on the ark. A lot of animals going into that boat, one door. Jesus said, I am the door. There's only one way to get into salvation. The ark story was a picture of Jesus. It's called typology, and it's all over the Old Testament, which should lead a thinking guy like you to go, you know, there's maybe a little too much about this book that isn't coincidental, like, let's just say 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ that he fulfilled, starting with being born in Bethlehem. You couldn't pick where you were born. I couldn't pick where I was born. Jesus was born in the city that the prophets foretold. He was betrayed. He was crucified. He rose from the all predicted. That should cause you to go, you know, that Bible is a little bit more than just a book written by men. Shouldn't it? I think it's a beautiful book in some parts. Yeah. I do think so. Yeah. What makes it beautiful, though, the thing that makes it really beautiful is not a moral code for how to live. It's that you have a savior, that you have a deliverer, you have a redeemer. You have somebody who's willing to take you in your muck and mire and cleanse you and pluck you out and put your feet on a rock and give you an understanding of why the world exists the way that it does. What you're doing here, Irving, what's the point with an agnostic worldview? There can be one, but there doesn't need to be. I don't believe there is. But ultimately, it's a very temporal purpose. Sure. Yeah. But see, you have a soul, and it's going to live forever. When you die, you're going to one or two places. You're going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. I'm going to one place. I know that. You're going to which place? That one. Which one? The hell one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, 
Irving, I, I can't laugh at that. I can't. I'm sorry. It was only because Jesus described hell as eternal conscious torment. Man, it goes on forever. I don't know how thirsty you've ever been, but you'll never have a drop of water to quench your thirst. Everything that we're seeing around us, it's all just window dressing. God is rich in mercy, and he wants to save Irving so that he can be seen as being a great God. I'll leave you with this thought. All right, Irving? God has two types of attributes. God has absolute attributes. For instance, he has power, and he has honesty, and he's unchanging. And because God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he can utilize those attributes, show those attributes to himself. But God has another set of attributes. And these are attributes that are a little bit different. They're attributes like mercy, grace, and loving kindness. If God is perfect, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, can the Father show mercy to the Son? No, because the Son doesn't need mercy. Can the Son show forgiveness to the Holy Spirit? No, because the Holy Spirit doesn't need forgiveness. In order for those attributes to be put on display, do you know what God needs? Justice? Sinners. Sinners. So he created a perfect world. He put two naked vegetarians into a garden. That's the story. And he allowed them to choose evil. And they did. And because of Adam, we are all represented by him, and we are all fallen in him. We all need a rescuer. Now, check this out, Irving. This, this, This should impress you to a degree. Once they ate the fruit... I believe it was a honey crisp apple, but I could be wrong because those things are definitely tempting. Mm-hmm. They ate the fruit. What did they realize all of a sudden? They, they had knowledge. They, they were naked. That they were naked. Yeah. And what did they try to do to cover up their nudity? Was it put like a, not like a fig leaf or something? Yeah, that's like, right. Like yeah. Fig Some leaf. sort of leaf to cover themselves up because there was shame. God finds them, and he sees that their efforts to cover up their own shame are not satisfactory. So the first blood ever to be shed was shed by God himself to provide a covering for people's sin. Do you see what that is? It's there a, is the limitude. It's, 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 a, it's a fuzzy picture of the gospel, that you need God to provide a sacrifice because your works aren't going to get the job done. And the question is, God promised right away, I'm going to provide somebody who's going to crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise his heel. Who is it? Who is it? Let's go back to Abraham. He was given a threefold promise. Land, Israel, nation, the Jewish people, and a seed, singular, a seed. Who is that seed? Jesus. You are correct. You remember that from being Presbyterian. Every correct answer is Jesus. Jesus. That's right. It was Jesus. All of those things in the Old Testament point to Jesus in the New. It should cause you to say, wow, that is the point. God has been preaching the gospel as long as this planet has been in existence, and he has preached the gospel to you today, Irving. And he is calling you this day to repent and put your trust in him because he desires to save you because that shows off his attributes of mercy, grace, and loving kindness. That's the purpose for the planet. And if you're not in alignment with that purpose, your life will be futile. Fair enough. Fair enough. You're a gentleman. You let me preach it. Can I appreciate that? Thank you. You as well. Can I give you a certificate? Perfect.
Got conflict in your life? Of course you do, because you live with sinners. We have a resource just for you. Conflict. It's all about biblical reconciliation. It is profoundly helpful, and you can find it at Wretched. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio today. Thanks for listening, and we'll go out with Yankee and Friends and the VIVLE. Bye for now.